What's up, shipheads? It's Bull here. And I am Dez. And we are excited. We are here to announce the launch of our new feed, the Party Like It's 90s feed. Listen, everyone loves the 90s. It's one of the best decades out there. Just thinking back of that time in your life in the 90s. On this feed, we're going to be tackling all things from that decade. We're going to be taking our favorite show formats and bringing them over to do so. Dad, tell me a little bit about some of the film and TV content we have coming their way. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're going deep into the closet and we're taking out that FUBU jacket and we're putting new batteries into our Tamagotchi. So we're, we're ready to go here, Bull. And you've got all the franchises that you already know and love. You've got movie drafts, you've got Take 5, and you've got these deep dives that we do. And we're going to really just go right towards the 90s. We're looking at year by year, the best movies of the 90s. And we're doing draft style, head to head. Then we're looking at some deep dives. We're talking about all your classics from the 90s. The Big Lebowski, Hocus Pocus, Cool Runnings. There's all kinds of great deep dives we're looking into the 90s for this one here. And then you got your take fives, your top five lists of all the things 90s. So, you know, you're not going to want to miss any of this stuff. So get your Furbies all lined up and enjoy. If that wasn't enough, we're bringing in all the rest of our network in to join us in building out this feed. We're going to be bringing in the Scary Movie Project team to do horror-specific releases of the 90s. We're going to be bringing in the sports team to tackle the dream team drafts of the 90s, make the best super team, one of the best rosters. We'll be tackling all of that. And if that wasn't enough, we're going to be getting jiggy with it and taking our draft format and doing year-by-year music mixtape drafts. Build out your ideal mixtape for any given year. We're going to be going down the whole decade. If you love the 90s, if you were born and you lived through the 90s, if you weren't and you're jealous and you want to go back and see what everyone's going crazy about, this is for all of you. So make sure you subscribe. Lots of fun content coming your way. And we're going to party like it's the 90s. Yep. Hey, there you are. Welcome to Something From Nothing, talks with creatives about creativity. A warning about today's show, our last segment is an interview with Tiffany Bosher, who talks about finding meaning through international volunteerism. In telling her story, she talks about events that led her to attempt suicide. She isn't at all graphic about it, but I know it can be a sensitive topic, and I don't want you listening to it without a warning. The topic of mental health is especially timely right now, with so many people affected by the pandemic. More people than ever are feeling stressed, disconnected, and anxious. Whether it's because of the loss of a job, the loss of income, maybe they're feeling just disconnected from friends and family, uncertain about the future and what's to come. It's an unusual time, to say the least. Uh, I think my talk with Tiffany reminded me that I'm still able to reach out and talk to people I haven't seen in a while and haven't talked to enough over the last year. So in a way, that's kind of why I started the podcast. It's, uh, I've been considering it for a long time. and was really ready to do it once I started doing Zoom meetings and other online meetups with friends. It felt good to hear their voices again and throw around ideas like we did before COVID backed us all into a tiny corner of our own little worlds. The interviews I've done so far have been fun, so much fun, uh, with conversations about, uh, about joys big and small that have helped people through all kinds of adversity. It's no substitute for face-to-face conversation and a wide smile for someone you miss. It's something I've enjoyed immensely. And I hope you feel the same. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to talk tie-ins. We're going to get nerdy and we're going to travel the world. This is Something for Nothing. I'm Matt Betts.
today for the interview is Tim Wagner. He's uh, got over 50 novels. He's got uh, uh, seven collections of short stories. He's uh, done tons of media tie-ins, which we'll talk about in a bit. He writes uh, a lot of horror. He's been uh, nominated for the Shirley Jackson Award, the Scribe Award, Splatterpunk Award, and he's also uh, won a Bram Stoker Award. So uh, please uh, join me in welcoming Tim Wagner. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, I'm so thrilled you're here. Uh, Tim and I live not too far away from each other, so we end up at a lot of the same conferences. And obviously, due to COVID, we haven't seen each other at a lot of conferences lately. So, um, and it's like we were saying before we started recording. You know, it's it's fun being on screen and and, and doing it that way. Uh, you know, doing uh, various workshops or whatever. But it just doesn't quite compare to being in person and and you know seeing people and, and bouncing ideas off them or whatever and just catching up in general. We were supposed to go to the uh, the horror writers conference. And that got uh, canceled in, what was it this year? Denver, I believe. So we didn't get a fly out there. And uh, the few other ones that we missed this year. So uh, so how are you faring with that? Are, are you generally a conference person or is it something you kind of do because you have to? I really enjoy conferences. Um, you know, I, I try not to do too many just because uh, uh, when I first started going to like science fiction cons, one of the things writers would talk about is the writers who that's what all they did every weekend. <laughs> so right. they never had any right, time right. to write. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I try to pick a couple to go to every year. I really love the the chance not only to see other writers and then see friends that I haven't seen for a while, but I really like the fact that the conferences float and go to different places. So, you know, it kind of gives me an excuse to to travel because right. I, I wouldn't know where to pick. <laughs> I want to go everywhere. Right. So, and SoferCon you know, is, is a great example. Uh, the first one I went to, the first one I missed, uh, I was supposed to go on last minute. I, I didn't, they had it in New Orleans. And then I did go to the one that was in, uh, on the Queen Mary in California. And then was the other one Rhode Island? And then this one is Denver, right? So they move around. Oh, no, didn't we also miss one in like overseas, didn't we? In London? Did they do one not that long ago or supposed to? Last year. So mm-hmm. for, uh, yeah, last year was supposed to be in London. And I was excited because I'd never been to England yeah. before. But Right. So we've missed a couple of big ones here. So I'm, I'm excited to get back into it. And yeah, like I said, just to, just to have, I, I come back from every conference really energized and really, you know, ready to, to get to work and really just excited that, you know, to be around that sort of group of people with that energy and um, to have so long to go without it is kind of rough. Yeah, it's a, uh, re- it's a really good recharge. Uh, There's all kinds of other stuff you pick up too, but I mean, the recharge is a big part of it. Yeah. So we want, I want to talk a little bit about your, your creative process, but I want to explain how, uh, how, how uh, we, uh, I I reached out to 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 have you on there. The uh, Ship It Network is, is really sort of originally built around a lot of fandoms. And uh, I pitched this whole thing uh, as, you know, talking to people about creativity and, and finding a way to tie it to fandoms. And you're certainly someone that I know as a writer who is, has their, their, fingerprint in a lot of different fandoms for your media tie-in work uh you've done uh, stuff with alien you've done supernatural uh, you've done four or five with supernatural i think uh yep. resident evil you did the uh, the movie novelization as well as uh the return of xander cage for triple x and uh uh grim and also some uh, a stargate and i want to say it's uh, uh dungeons and dragons through wizards of the coast you did something for them didn't you yeah I did a few books for them yeah yeah. So before we kind of get into your, your process, is it tough to switch gears between each, you know, when you, if, between say your own work and uh, which you're free to do what you want to do and doing sort of a tie in for someone else that has, you know, a very strict set of rules that you, certain things you can and can't do in their world? 
Yeah, it, it can be sometimes. Um, it might take me a couple weeks, even long as a month, maybe to kind of shift gears. But during that time, I'm often doing research, even if it's a property I know. I'm mm-hmm. often doing research just into what's going on with it now. And I'm looking at images and, you know, watching clips or reading interviews with the creators of like a show or a game or something. Um, and then eventually, you know, you just kind of kind of ease into it. Yeah. And, and for listeners who may not be aware of what tie-in work is, it can be anything from, like I said, you, you did the movie novelization of something like Resident Evil, Evil, the final chapter, where you're you know, basically writing what the film was, you know, writing the script into a novel. And other things you can do for a media tie-in might be a whole new property or a whole new uh, story in that, that it wasn't told on the screen in some way. Like uh, like we said with Supernatural, there's several on there that uh, were wholly original ideas if you're set in this other world, right? And then you do the same for video games and you can do the same for, you know, just about anything can have a, a tie-in. Uh, I did one for Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, uh, just continuing the adventures of one of their characters. So a lot of things can, can end up being sort of a, a media tie-in. But yeah, so um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I really enjoyed the ones I've, the things I've managed to do with them because really you can find something you love, you know, a, a, a story or a property or whatever that you love and you get to go in and have your vision be a part of this thing that you've been following for years or that you might've enjoyed for years. Right. You know, in, in a lot of ways, I mean, it, economically or financially or whatever, business-wise, you know, somebody else owns this stuff. Right. But it's the same kind of basic creative tradition as if you're writing about King Arthur or Merlin or Robin Hood, you know, the mythological gods. You know, these are these are figures that have been around forever and stories that have been around forever. And people love to explore those things and try to put their own spin on them. And, you know, when something hits like uh, the public domain, you see a lot of things like, you know, suddenly Wizard of Oz. Everybody's doing Wizard of Oz books or, you know, they're doing Alice in Wonderland. So it's 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 those are times in the sense that they, you know, they're not original properties of the uh, created by the people writing them today. But since nobody owns the copyright on them, anybody could just can just do it. But for tie-ins, you know, as lo- since people do own the copyright, they have to be officially licensed, mm-hmm. which, uh, yeah, you never quite know what you, you may end up writing. It's part of the fun. Yeah. And a lot of times that when they bring you on right away, they want to have you sign a non-disclosure. So you, 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 and before you even know what you're going to do necessarily. That's true. <laughs> so uh, like you said, that's kind of the fun of it. If it's, you know, they tell you this is what it's going to involve and, uh, and it's something you're eager to, to, uh, to, to work in. It's, it's an interesting proposition. Um, so let's, like I said, we, you do, you've done a horror, you've done fantasy and, uh, you do have a, and you also have a wonderful nonfiction book on writing called writing in the dark. Who, who are the people you, you read when you, before you started writing, who, who were you really interested in or what genres? I used to read all kinds of things. Uh, when I was very, very young, you know, I would read nonfiction, you know, like simple biographies of people like, um, I don't know, could be Thomas Edison or somebody mm-hmm. or, or a book about the life cycle of crickets, just <laughs> as much as I would read like a, a short, you know, book of stories, you know, simple stories for, for very young kids. And then as time went on, um, like a lot of kids, I found myself of, of, you know, I'm 57, so kids of my generation, I found myself kind of swept up in watching TV more than doing anything else and not reading as much. And then long about sixth grade or so, I discovered comic books. And so I just started voraciously reading all of those. And the Marvel comics, especially at the time, they were doing a characterization in a way that you normally didn't see. 
at least for me, you know, because I, I I was used to seeing like uh, the kind of normal, uh, you know, mythological, but not necessarily realistic DC comics of the time. And so for me, those things blew me away. Hmm. And the stories, you could be like reading X-Men or Spider-Man. And throughout the course of a year, all kinds of stories would be told. You know, Spider-Man might be fighting crooks one week and the next week it's a vampire. And the week after that, he's in space or month, hmm. I mean, after yeah. that, he's in space. And so I, I, I sort of like absorbed this wonderful, you know, everything but the kitchen sink. And then from there, I started reading fantasies. It was a, the, the, the real big push, the next push of the Lord of the Rings becoming, you know, popular and publishing again. Hmm. And the Sword of Shannara and um, Lord Fowl's Bane. And there was just all these, you know, wonderful fantasies that were coming out. Um, I really enjoyed Piers Anthony's uh, Xanth books just because they were so wide wild and wacky and massively creative. And from there, you know, Stephen King, I started was reading too around that time. And I'd always loved uh, horror movies and monsters and things like that. Uh, Read horror comic books before I got into superhero comic books. And, you know, after the, you know, the kind of years went on, I just sort of gravitated more and more toward reading horror. And, you know, even though I wrote lots of different things, the horror seemed to be the stuff that spoke to me the most and that people seem to respond to readers and editors the most. And so I kind of gravitate in that direction more and more. Uh, for, for me, I, um, you know, I was growing up in the seventies and, uh, you know, Star Wars comes out and I'm, you know, seven or eight years old or whatever. And I, I loved it, but, you know, at that point in time, there weren't, there wasn't, there weren't many sequels, at least not to anything I was, uh, I was interested in watching. Not, not a lot of movies I was aware of had sequels. So I went out and started buying the, the comic books of Star Wars that started and then Battlestar Galactica. And so here was this whole other medium that was telling stories of characters that I love, which tricked me into reading these, you know, all of these things, which then led to some Star Wars novels or read to, you know, uh, more science fiction. And it was just something I loved that led to another thing that led to another thing that kind of like you said, you know, you, 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 uh, find something that you, you really enjoy and then sort of find those ancillary things that pull you toward, you know, another medium that you weren't really aware of. And, uh, and it kind of keeps you going, you know, and, uh, that's, yeah, I, I, I see comic books are, are so, well, today, you know, when I was collecting, them, you know, they, not to be the, Hey, when I was a kid, you know, but you know, there were 35 cents and so I could buy a handful of them and be great. And now when I, you know, I go and you know, they're $5, I think they were going to raise the price even from there. Um, it's tougher for kids. It's more of an adult game now of, you know, grabbing comics and being able to afford comics. I think, um, that's kind of why I stopped reading and collecting them is it just got way too expensive of a hobby where you could, you know, buy a novel for the price of two comics and, and you're good, you know? Right, right. You know, plus you got bills to pay and maybe kids right. in school you're helping out. And it just seemed like for me, uh, I'd stopped and then I went back to it for a while mm-hmm. just to re-explore it. And I was yeah. really enjoying it, but I just couldn't justify the cost. Right. Well, you, well, now I can go back and I can buy all the back issues I missed for a dollar at the comic store in their bargain bin, you know, and uh, rather than paying, you know, three or four dollars or whatever their cover price was when I missed it, you know. Um, and, and with all the Marvel movies, I kind of went, you know, back and grabbed a few things to see what I how they related to the comics that I missed. But so, so we're talking about, uh, you know, your your process then uh, you, you you got into novel, you know, you got into reading the novels. What, what made you start thinking, hey, I can write a novel or a short story or, or how did you where, where did you start? Well, you know, like a lot of creative people, I tried all kinds of stuff. You know, I was in the, the drama club in my school. I, you know, I took art classes. I was in the band and took a creative writing class. So I just tried all of it. 
Mm-hmm. It was all fun and interesting to me. As yeah. long as it was creative, I was into it. But when I got into comic books, I wanted to be an artist. I thought it'd be very cool to be a comic artist. So I started uh, my own little comic book, just, you know, done on notebook paper. And I made it about my friends and myself as a superhero because I figured at least I'd have them reading it. <laughs> I would right. read this thing. And, you know, I, I did it for several years. And I used to get angry because they would tell me my art was terrible, but they really liked the stories. I'm only writing these things, so I have something to draw. <laughs> and but as time went on, I, I realized that I could I could capture more and communicate more faster and more precisely than I could with drawing. Um, I could tell stories in a way mm-hmm. that I couldn't tell with drawing, even like sequential art, like a comic book. Right. And I just started shit. And then when I started reading again heavily. In high school, I started shifting over to uh, doing more, uh, you know, thinking about maybe I could write a book or maybe I could do this. And uh, I remember I read sometime in high school, I read an interview with Stephen King in an old magazine. It was probably right after The Shining came out. And, you know, so he was new. He, he, he would have an interview in a comic magazine. <laughs> you know, he wouldn't have today. Yeah. And uh, when I read it, I don't know what, but something clicked and I realized I'd never really given much thought to the person's name, you know, on the book or listed in the comic as the writer. But I realized that writing was something a person could choose to do Hmm. or at least choose to try to do. Uh, You know, so I told my mom that and, you know, she just said, you know, I think you'd be really good at it. And I was like, maybe I can be, you know, so it's just that encouragement really kind of spurred me on. And then I had my freshman comp class in college at the last conference uh, my instructor, you know, she told me that, you know, she thought I was a really good writer. She urged me to take my writing as far as I could go. And I started college as an acting major and I did not like saying other people's words. <laughs> and so, you know, I shifted over to, to like uh, education with an English concentration after that. But th- that's kind of, you know, how it sort of slowly but surely, you know, pushed me in that direction or it more likely maybe sort of peeled away some things and revealed what was there at the core. So, so, so when you start out some comp classes and things like that, but did you take any sort of specifically novel writing or anything like that? Or how did, how did you approach your first stories? Was it, um, there's always the big, uh, outlining versus pantsing sort of thing. Uh, did you just dive into your, your, your early stories or did you, you know, did you have a process? Well, the very earliest stories were, you know, I thought out what I wanted to do. I don't recall writing any notes. Um, there, there weren't PCs yet. They were about a year in the future. So, so everything was on a typewriter. Uh, so if I wrote anything down, it was probably going to be in like a notebook or something. But I remember kind of working them out as I went. And then, you know, I had started around that time. My dad brought home Writer's Digest, which I didn't know existed. And I was reading all the how-to articles in there. I didn't care if it was about writing greeting cards. I read it because I wanted yeah, to know yeah. all about it. And so I started picking stuff up from that. And from there, um, you know, they would advertise books on writing and in there that they sold through their own. So I would order a few of those. So even though I had a couple creative writing classes in college, those were just sort of generic ones that didn't really give you a whole lot of how-to It was mostly write something and let everybody just gives you feedback on it. There wasn't a lot of instruction on the craft, but I got that from elsewhere. Um, You know, nowadays you could pick that up from the Internet and YouTube videos and all kinds of stuff. But yeah, and I hunted down every interview I could find with a writer, too, just so I could read about what their process was like and, you know, how they learned and what I might get from that. And then I just kept trying. You know, I started writing, started my first novel at 18, which is had no idea what I was doing, just trying to emulate the kind of things I read. And so over time, it just, all of this 
still continues, you know, in terms of, you know, reading or hearing about somebody else's process, but at the same time trying to emulate something you read at the same time, kind of blundering through because you're not sure what you're doing. I tend to outline more often than not, because most of my books these days are sold through an outline first. All the tie-in stuff has to be outlined because you have to have it approved by an editor and then whoever at the rights holder you know, whether it's a studio or a comic company or game company, or there's somebody there in charge of reviewing all the licensed properties and they tell you what you can and can't do. So you have a really detailed outline by the time you sit down to do one yeah. of those. But there's also a little bit of room still for improvisation in my outlines. I'm not, as long as it's not a tie-in, because I stick to right. those. Yeah. But if it's my own, I'm, I'm happy to go ahead and improvise and often I'll veer away from the outline and I'll just keep going. And I, I think I, I kind of did the same. I started out mainly as a pantser and I just went for it. And, and, and I, I find, uh, much to my chagrin that I, when I, even if I do have a minimal outline going to help me, it's going to give me that sort of roadmap where I have that freedom in between each waypoint, but at least I know what the next waypoint is. Right. And I, I do short stories like that with maybe just a couple lines jotted down. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and often, uh, even with the books, if I have an outline, I may not even refer to it because by that point I'll have the story in my head, but I've been doing this for a while. So I think that the, <laughs> being able to kind of shift back and forth between like having some structure and having, you know, some not, it's kind of like surfing. You got a little bit of structure because you've got your experience and you've got your board. You don't control the waves. You kind of have to, you know, you can kind of pick one and then write it and hope for the best and then kind of adjust to whatever circumstances come. So it's kind of like that, which is part of the fun. You know, that's sort of a, a bit of uncertainty like that. Not sure what being sure what's going to happen, what's how it's going to turn out. That's a big part of the fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and when I have a, a, a scene or a chapter, I don't know how it ends, but I have an outline. So I know how the next chapter starts. I can just skip over that part I don't know and start the next chapter. And then it sort of resolves itself. Oh, well, you know, this person had to have done this, that, or the other thing. And it's, it is sort of discovery as you go along, even if you have that map and even if you have that in your head, it's a, it's sometimes a surprise. And people tell me it shouldn't, your writing shouldn't be a surprise, but it's, you know, there are things that come up that you're like, I hadn't thought about going in that direction when I outlined this, but now it makes perfect sense. And I think it's a mistake to say your writing shouldn't surprise you because that probably means you're just without even realizing you're either taking the easiest route or sort of, you know, subconsciously copying stories that you've seen, you know, because we've seen thousands upon thousands of hours of stories or read thousands upon thousands of hours of stories. And we're likely to, 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 to do what the 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 path of least resistance, you know, whatever the most common right. default is. But if you plan it out too much mm-hmm. or just stick to your plan. But if you're not mm-hmm. like open to the discovery as you go along, you know, if you're not surprising yourself, you're not going to surprise your readers. That's just, yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking. I mean, if, if, uh, if it's, if it's just a, a straight line all the way through to, to you, it's probably going to be the same for your reader and somewhere along the line, they're going to lose it. I, I would think they would lose interest. Um, especially if that's how you approach all of the books, you know, if, if every one of your stories has that same predictable straight line, I would imagine that, you know, uh, your readers will get bored some, at some point, you know, with that formula. As you're going along, what's, what's the first novel that you end up publishing or getting published? The first one, this is, it's a, was an odd thing. I've never had it repeated. I had written, um, a tie in story set in, uh, the world of Xena, the warrior princess, oh, yeah. but, uh, I wrote it because another writer was writing for that anthology and was kind of stuck. And the editor's like, oh, why don't you ask Tim to, to work with you? He's, you know, I think you guys get along great. So it was one of the few stories I've ever collaborated on. It went great. Um, and then we were all done. 
Russell Davis was the name of the, the writer. And he said, oh, by the way, you know, I'm also an editor. So, you know, if I'm ever editing something that I, I could use you for, I'll let you know. And I'm like, oh, that's great. And just didn't think much about it because right. you never know. People mean that stuff, but you never know what's how it's going to turn out. And then several years later, Russell he became the the editor of a short-lived publishing house called Foggy Windows. Mm-hmm. It was all erotica for married couples. Okay. So the, the you were the sex was very constrained in what you had to write, right. and he he asked me to to pitch ideas for it. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I want to get a novel published because I've been writing novels without any success for a while. You know, I had my practice novels or whatever, mm. but then I'm also like. Do I really want to write erotica? That's not, you know, I didn't have anything against it, but it just wasn't something I thought of. And then the idea of for married couples and the constraints that the the overall publisher had put on that, I, I couldn't take it seriously. So I, I pitched him a comic mystery about a husband and wife private eye team that they, their cases they had trouble with them because they couldn't keep their hands off each other during, during the case. So they <laughs> yeah. miss like they're tailing, you know, they're, they're doing on a stakeout and they miss the person. The person leaves the, their place, their apartment or whatever, because they're too, you know, they're otherwise occupied. Right. And so I, I wrote it as a comedy and uh, it was a lot of fun to do. And I even worked really hard. I had to have nine sex scenes in it. And I tried to make every single one serve the plot or character <laughs> and advance it somehow. Right. And only one did the, the publisher got squeamish about and had me change. Because mm-hmm. it just it was too close to not being married person sex or something. I just wasn't wasn't quite there. I, right. So uh, only one scene did it, I had to replace it, and it didn't quite like you know mm-hmm. advance the plot. And then wow. after five books, the first five books, the publishing house folded, mm-hmm. and uh, to make it worse, it was work for hire. So I can't oh. really <laughs> you know I can't use the book for anything else. Although. I could probably file off the serial numbers and person, you know, who owned the publishing house. Uh, right. I think he was in the hardware business. I don't know why he came up with this idea to do this. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was yeah. the very first first book I had published. So it was a it was kind of an odd experience, but it was a good one. I still have yeah. like half a dozen copies sitting here. <laughs> but yeah, you kind of find that uh, as far as that publisher, you find that a lot in publishers, at least nowadays. They're they're very much a one man band or, or, you know, a husband and wife team. And, you know, they have a day job. And they're, you know, they're it. They take care of the finances. They take care of the editing. They take care of either they have the artwork or, or, or they hire somebody to do it. But you, you, and, and unfortunately we find, you know, a lot of them fail, but, uh, they do put out some interesting stuff as they go. I, I, I think their hearts are in the right place, I guess. But, um, yeah, a lot of, I, I know a lot of small, small publishers that have done some terrific work, but just for one reason or another couldn't do it, you know, couldn't keep it, uh, couldn't sustain the, uh, the quality or sustained having a, a, a major day job and having all the responsibilities of a publisher. I have been really impressed this last year though, when, because when COVID hit, the uh, you know, the big publishing ground to a halt instantly yeah. and nobody knew what to do or what was going to happen or how to keep going. And the small press, they just kept chugging along. They kept chugging along, putting stuff out and I, I kind of liken it to the dinosaurs and the little small mammals. When the dinosaurs <laughs> were dying, the small mammals are like, you know, we're okay in this environment. We're going to keep going. I'd be surprised if, uh, you know, sometime before, you know, too awfully long that small press and, you know, indie writers will probably be the norm as opposed to, you know, the, the bigger kind of corporate conglomerate publishers. Right. And with some of the small presses and with some of the authors with small presses, myself included, I mean, sometimes the complaint is, you know, you can't get the distribution or whatever, but that's what really brought things to a halt here is that, you know, a lot of the distributors and a lot of the printers weren't 
making the books and shipping the books for the larger people. And uh, the smaller presses, like you said, just kind of kept chugging along doing their own thing. Yeah. So that's some more people I'm missing is, uh, you know, I haven't seen any of my publishers for a while and I haven't seen some of the other authors that uh, that are with those publishers. So uh, looking forward to connecting with some of them again. Let's talk about uh, writing in the dark. You've had this originated from your newsletter or was it a blog? How did this get started? I, I had a blog that uh, uh, Jason Sizemore at Apex, mm-hmm. had, I was talking to him about starting a blog. I didn't know what to do. And he's like, you're a writer. You're a teacher. Write about <laughs> writing. People read that. So go. I started a blog and I just called it Writing in the Dark since I tend to write horror more than anything. And as the years went by, I was um, uh, uh, one of my publishers, Sam Hain, who's gone out of business since. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were here close by in Cincinnati, and they used to go to the Horror Hound conventions, have a big table there. Mm-hmm. And so they had a bunch of us writers, you know, show up and sign books and whatever. And I was thinking about, I noticed people would pass out like, you know, bookmarks and postcards and whatever. And I'm like, well, who the hell wants those things? I mean, who who wants stuff that is just... The, the book cover of somebody else's book Absolutely. that you're going to take with you. So I thought maybe I'll go ahead and make a little, a tiny handout about writing horror. So I wrote something that I called the, the short guide to writing horror. It was just like, you know, printed out on double sided that I could pass out to people. And then uh, I looked at that and I was like, you know, I could probably expand this. And so I cannibalized it for PowerPoints for workshops and different blog entries. And then, you know, as the years went by and I had more PowerPoints from workshops and more blog entries, I was like, you know, I think I could probably put this into a book about writing horror. Uh, and I'm, I've been fascinated with horror all my life. The So I, I, writing, the idea of writing was really exciting, but it was also kind of intimidating because you're like, what the hell make, gives me the right to tell people <laughs> you right. know, how yeah. to write? So I looked at it more as just like a conversation between me and people about there are some, these are some cool things I've learned about writing horror that I'd like to share with you. And that made it a lot easier for me to do. Just obviously, uh, having taught for quite a while, uh, some of these are probably called from, you know, students' uh, questions and, and, and advice to students. I, I, I my uh, the college I went to had absolutely no, you know, genre fiction. It was all mainly just if you want to write fiction. Uh, so it wasn't all as informative as I would have loved to. Um, do you find people uh, have a lot of the same problems or questions as they're coming in to learn uh, about uh, about writing or or, or learn about uh, novels and publishing? Yeah, they, they really do. Um, you know, a lot, some of it's craft, some of it's business stuff. You know, they hear a lot of stuff on social media. Uh, they get all this advice and stuff that you're supposed to do or should do or can't do. And so a lot of times they ask if that kind of stuff is true. And most of the time it's not. Right. <laughs> but, you know, and, and so a lot of the normal kind of craft stuff, uh, you know, they're just not sure how to do. Right. Um, a, a lot of the mechanical stuff that you do, mm-hmm. simple things, even how, like, how do you set up the dialogue? How do you move from one scene to another? How do you transition all that? And I think a lot of it is because a lot of people who come to creative writing classes, the younger people, I think they would rather go to a, to a film class or a video game making class. Right. But my co- college offers creative writing. And yeah. so a lot of them don't read as much as they could. So it's difficult for them to try to, to use, you know, literary techniques when, you know, what they're thinking of is jump cuts and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Right. And, and I think I, sometimes in my writing have that same problem. I, you know, it's, uh, I want to write about how the camera sweeps around through the valley and over to, you know, whatever. And there's, it's, there's no camera, there's no sweeping. It's all, you know, what you're writing just gets uh, kind of rough. If, if you're used to those media, I mean, ever, um, 
my kids are the same. They have uh, screens in front of them all the time, whether they're watching movies or right now they're at school. They have uh, they're doing it you know by distance. And I think uh, having so much of that uh, that contact with a screen with a television that it's uh, it's it's tough to figure out another way to go, you know, another way to tell that story when they're used to it in, in, in this form. Right. A lot of the, the, you know, our screen time, we're passive observers of stuff mm-hmm. that other people create for us. Right. And even in video games, I mean, the screen is a barrier between you and whatever actions are, are happening, you know, as you move your avatar around mm-hmm. and you're still not really that person. You don't imagine really being that person in that space doing those things. Mm-hmm. And so you're not exactly a passive observer, but you're still kind of an observer and certainly a distant observer uh, in a lot of ways. And I think it's really hard for people to imagine that they are in this environment, they are this character doing and thinking and feeling these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just shifting to that mindset is, is a huge, huge barrier for a lot of people. Uh, my, my son, uh, well, both my sons, but mainly my younger one, likes to watch YouTube videos about people playing video games. So as he's watching them play video games, because they'll, you know, they'll do a walkthrough or they'll do tricks and secrets or whatever, so a lot of times when I'm talking to him, he sounds like he's narrating something because these guys are always talking about, first, we're going to go over here. And, oh, there's that thing and there's this. And so when he tries to tell his own stories, he always feels like this this sort of talking head narrating what's going on on the screen as opposed to, you know, trying to actually uh, punch up a story or make it, make it into a story rather than a narration. Right. And that's, you know, as the years go by, those kind of things may become more dominant storytelling techniques, absolutely, more dominant styles. And there's not a not a damn thing wrong with that. No. And what really blows me away is, you know, my my son just turned 10 and he has downloaded several things that he can create, you know, his own small video games in ways that. When I was, you know, when, when I, when I was a kid, you know, it took forever to do this. You had to do all this coding. You had to do, you know, you had to know all that. And now it's really just sort of a plug and play drop, uh, you know, drop things where you want them. And it's a video game all of a sudden, you know? So I see that, like you said, becoming so much bigger as, as it goes along. I mean, as we go, it's going to be such a whole other genre of, of books and storytelling. Let's finish out. I've almost got you. Uh, uh, I think I promised you a shorter interview, but let's talk about Your Turn to Suffer, which I think is your most recent uh, novel, right? It just came out a couple weeks ago. Great. Uh, so tell me a little bit about this. I know this is uh, sort of a, a, I don't want to say a, a stalking thing. It's more of a, a, a this young lady being harassed by, a, by this group. Yeah, it's in some ways. I mean, it's not. It doesn't read like this, but mm-hmm. it's like some of the work of Kafka where, you know, you have a character who's being oppressed by forces that and they have no clue why. And the forces right. are not particularly cooperative in telling them <laughs> right. for some reason. So, you know, it's like that. They're, the main character, you know, one day she's approached by a woman in, a gro- in the grocery and the woman has weird goat eyes <laughs> and tells her, you know, you know what you did. Confess in a tone or suffer. And the main character is like, I have no clue what I did. I don't know what you're talking about. I think you're crazy. And the the woman and others like her belong to a group called the Cabal, who their whole purpose in this story is they're trying to get my character. Her name's Lori. They're trying to get her to confess and atone for some kind of transgression. She has no idea that she's committed. And for whatever reasons, they won't tell her what it is. You know, she has to figure it out for herself. And to put pressure on her, they start dismantling pieces of her life. They start, you know, doing bad things to her 
her, her boyfriend, her family, um, their people she works with. And they also start dragging her back and forth between dimensions to their own kind of weird, surreal dimension to wow. where they confront her and question her and uh, harass her even more. Sure. And it, to kind of break down, you know, her hold on reality in her mind, too. So, you know, it takes place half in the real world, but weird things happen in the real world, and half in this other dimension that is, you know, more surreal and more dangerous than our world. And all the time, she's trying to, while she's trying to deal with all this stuff and maintain her sanity, uh, she's trying to figure out, you know, what she needs to fix to make all this go away. Wow. It, it sounds uh, it sounds like a, a terrific book. And this is your first is this your first from uh, Flame Tree Press? I know they're a terrific uh, smaller publisher. It's my fourth one from them, wow. maybe. All right. Gotcha. I was going to click their website and I didn't want to do it while we were talking, but uh, I've met them at uh, several conferences and uh, they seem to be a, ter- a terrific uh, small ish publisher. Yeah, they're great. I'd recommend anybody working with them. And to wrap things up, I don't know if we want to get into a big discussion about this, but um, I know you're a big Godzilla fan, just like I am. <laughs> um, did you uh, asking if you've seen it is probably silly, but um, uh, what did you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think I was, you know, I read a few articles ahead of time and people were like, oh, the human stories in, in the in the, the movie just don't add up. And I read one, too, where they're like, oh, this one group, they don't do a whole lot. And I'm like, <laughs> have you guys never watched these movies? The humans are <laughs> the, the humans are supposed to be witnesses. Otherwise, you know, it would just be like in the old days, it would just be two guys in a suit without the people to give you that proportion uh, and, to, and, to, and to worry about that they're in danger. Because otherwise they're just knocking down buildings and you don't care. Yeah. But I really, I really enjoyed it. You know, I like the special effects. I like the story. I like the way it turned out. There were all kinds of stuff that was improbable and stupid, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, the, right. the whole premise of giant monsters is stupid because nothing that, that right. big could survive. <laughs> yep, it's physiologically impossible to have anything past a certain height. And, you know, the, the there's a reason why the biggest dinosaurs had four legs instead of standing up on two, <laughs> right. you know, but huh. it doesn't matter because like, yeah, like you said, in the hollow earth and all that, I don't care. This right, is right. the rules of this world. I am just fine. Just, it's just fun. And right. I think that the people that are looking for like I think the New Yorker might have had a, like a, a critique of the movie, and I'm like, seriously, this this is just for fun. You're, <laughs> right. you're missing the point, right? Uh, and yeah, and you know, there were a few things that bugged me, but uh, the effects were amazing, and I think the Godzilla was uh, a character was was uh, uh, consistent with all the other movies we've seen. Um, so to to say that there was anything different there was just kind of crazy. I, and and I, I do see a lot of articles where I just, it's like the old Shatner skit on Saturday Night Live, get a life. Uh, but no, I, I, I had fun. My, we, the whole family watched it. My kids loved it. They had a lot of fun. So uh, I think that's all that really matters. Now, did you see it in the theater? You watched it at home, didn't you? Yeah, no, I watched yeah. it at home. Extra careful until fall. Yeah, we watched one movie uh, over the last like year and a half in a theater, and that, well, and that was probably enough. We, there was a re-release uh, of Star of Empire Strikes Back, and we th- I thought it'd be fun to take my kid to to check that out on the big screen. But yeah, I've kind of st- done the same, avoided theaters other than that. Yeah, yeah, and I'm looking for. I know they'll do more with Godzilla. It should be a lot of fun to to see them continue. And I think they said that Bobby Millie Brown is has already signed up for the next one. Is already uh, ready for the for the next one or whatever. But um, so hopefully they'll keep a consistent cast to, to, to you know sort of get the complainers off everybody's back. I guess I do like yeah. that part because the old the old movies they were always brand new people. You yeah. almost never had anybody follow through. <laughs> so I, right. I do like the fact that it does feel like a little bit more like a consistent lived in world. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and the tone of it, movie to movie, has stayed very much the same. Whereas some of the older Godzilla movies, you could go from you know a slapstick movie to you know a very serious one, or, or you know the tone was always a little different depending on who was in control of the rights or in control of the film at that point. You know. Yeah. All right, Tim, thank you so much uh, for coming in and speaking with us. I really appreciate it. And I uh, look forward to catching up with you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, it'll be nice to be able to chat in person again. All right. I look forward to it. We'll talk to you later. All right. Take care. Time to check in with our head nerd news correspondent, Mike Liddy, for breaking Lord of the Rings news from overseas and everywhere else. Mike, how you doing? I'm great, Matt. How are you? I'm terrific, man. It's uh, We're in Ohio and there's that lovely Ohio weather that shifts back and forth every other day where it's gorgeous and then it's pouring and then it's freezing. And so we're coping, we're indoors and we're watching a lot of TV. And I I know you're a huge uh, Tolkien fan and a big Lord of the Rings fan. I, know, I love the Lord of the Rings movies and the novels. Love the Hobbit novel, but was a little shaky on the Hobbit movies. But, uh, you know, I think those Hobbit movies were told in real time, right? Over like a period of 81 days or something like that it just yeah, right kept going Kinda like uh, butter spread over too much bread if you will there you go yeah <laughs> right um so to you know to uh i don't know to make things clearer in the tolkien universe there's a, a new series coming up um right. is this going to be about the lord of the rings specifically or just kind of set in the world well it's going to be set in the world of middle earth you know mm-hmm so I, I don't think it's any news that Amazon is producing this kind of big budget, high production series that's coming out. It's based in in, in Middle Earth, like you said, uh, but it's going to be during the Second Age. Uh, uh-huh. So the Lord of the Rings that we that we're familiar with, the Peter Jackson trilogy, set during the Third Age. So it's about three thousand years after this this TV series. So it, you know, maybe consider it a bit of a prequel. All right? Uh, are there going to be lightsabers? You think? Uh, yeah, maybe <laughs> galaxy far away a long time ago. So like I said, it's in the, you know, the second age, this is a few yeah. thousand years before those. Um, right. it's, you know, uh, it, it takes place, uh, in, uh, at least heavily in the Island of Numenor, which is, you know, nice. where Aragorn's people are from, but gotcha. it, 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 we don't have a lot of information about the content. You know, we do know from what Tolkien's written that there's a, you know, there's a lot of, uh, activity during the second age. And so we can speculate a little bit on that. So as far as, uh, so as far as their production, we really don't know a whole lot just yet. It's still pretty early in their secretive work at this point. Yeah. So, well, it's in production right now. Uh, I got delayed last year because of, you know, obviously the pandemic in 2020, um, they're, they're still shooting for that 2021 release date as of right now. Um, we do know that there's a huge budget. It's about 250 million filming in New Zealand. So uh, this is, you know, it's it's no small potatoes. Right. Uh, uh, so w- you personally as a fan, what, what are kind of your expectations for this? 
So I'm super excited, right? I like yeah. like you said, I love the Lord of the Rings. I grew up with it. My dad read it to me when I was a little kid. I I read the books every year, you know. Um so so I, you know, I've got a little bit of a background in what's in in, you know, what occurred in the second age so we can speculate a little bit. Um, based on the geography and 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 the timing, and so what what I what I think maybe we'll see. Um, we do know that um, the Tolkien estate is a little bit involved here, in that they've kind of required there to be you know the the, the series follows canon, so they can't contradict anything Tolkien said or written. Okay. Um, that being said, they can you know, take a little creative license and, and, and they, of course, can add to it. So like I said, it's it's the second age. It's about, you know, 3,000, 3,400 years or so before the the events of the films. Um, and and this is the time period when when Sauron forged the rings of power, when he created the ring race and when he waged his first war against the elves. Between kind of those events and then the events that 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 they showed at the very beginning of the Fellowship of the Rings movies, where the men and the elves came together to fight Sauron and Isildur kind of cut his fingers off, right? <laughs> that marked the end of the Second Age. A little bit of overlap, and we got a little bit of you know some characters we're familiar with. Obviously, Elrond, Isildur. Don't know if we'll see them at all. Gandalf, he existed in some form in, in the Undying Lands of Amon. So doubtful we'll see that character come back. And I don't think we've heard, you said it's been pretty secretive and still fairly early. We, there's no um, rumors of anybody returning to play their younger selves from the movies or anything or? or? Not yet. You know, we don't we don't have, um, you know, they, they do have a cast list. Um, they don't really have that cast tied back to. Uh, specific characters at this point. None of the uh, the cast reflects anybody that we've seen in the movie. There's one character who played Shagrat, um, the the one of the orcs from the movie who's in it. But you know that could be just a, a coincidence. Um, it's a typecasting. He's going to be an orc in everything he plays now. Yeah, right. <laughs> but we, you know, it, it, it's a. It looks like I, I don't like the term unknowns. You know, when you talk about actors, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of minimizing. But there's oh right, right, right. There's you know, there's a lot of emerging actors I think in here, and and a few who have some experience acting in the in the fantasy and sci fi genre. So I'm I'm excited to see what they do with it. Do you think this is uh, in some ways kind of filling that uh, void left by uh, George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones since it's been off the air for a while and and was really for the longest time filling that, uh, you know, the sort of the reigning champion of uh, the the sort of medieval fighting and and drama uh, for a long time? Uh, Do you see them trying to fill that void? I think that's fair to say, you know, this, they, they first announced this, I think back in 2017. And so it was just, I think the, uh, excuse me, Game of Thrones was still going strong before that ninth season came out. And, you know, when I think about Game of Thrones, you think about, you know, not only the, the huge battles and the war and, you know, that aspect, but you also think about the politics and kind of, uh, espionage kind of aspects of that show. And I think when you think about what happened during the second age, particularly in Numenor, we're going to see a lot of the same uh, types of things. You know, this is a this is a region that that's building an army, getting ready for war. There's an impending threat over, you know, in, in Mordor and in, in the West. You know, the, this kind of like clashing of kingdoms and and potentially uh, juggling for power is is going to be a major theme. 
Yeah, I was going to say, it, it seems like uh, Middle Earth and everything we've read so far, you know, in, in the novels is just a perfect uh, setup for the power grab and for the backstabbing of uh, not just individual characters, but, of you know, nations that are trying to, you know, become that superpower or trying to take as much land as they can or whatever. It just seems just perfect for that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the the, the backstabbing and the you know, uh, strategy and the espionage and all that kind of stuff is, you know, that's kind of Sauron's bag. We see him in the, in the films portrayed kind of more as a, as a force and a, and a, and a leader, but you go back to his roots and he's kind of more, you know, trickster got kind of Loki ish, you know, uh, appearing very beautiful, but also, you know, harboring this terrible evil. So I think, I think we'll see a lot of that, uh, backstabbing components from game of Thrones in this. Great. Uh, so we go from that that we're very you know excited and we're 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 looking forward to it. We uh, we don't know what's going on, uh, but it's it's going to be it's going to be a spectacle. I'm guessing. We go from that to you recently watched a Lord of the Rings Russian TV series. Oh yeah. So yeah. This just was released a, a few days ago, uh, or within the past you know couple of weeks. Um, what what this is? It was originally. Uh, released on Russian television in 1991, kind of thought lost to the ages, uh, but or hoped. What's that? Yeah, or hoped lost to the ages. Yeah. It, it, but uh, recently, the TV studio uh, changed hands, and they they managed to unearth this adaptation of the Fellowship of the Ring. Really, okay. The film studio was, uh, or the television studio was, uh, you know, graceful enough to release it to the world for free on YouTube. Uh, and it's all in Russian, right? It's all in Russian. And you speak, you speak Russian, right? Oh, fluently. Absolutely. (laughs) Not at all. I know I say dosvidanya, but I don't really know what it means. Right. Um, but no, it, it is, it's fully in Russian. There's no closed captioning at this point anyway, in English or any other language. Mm. Um, and it's, it's released in two parts, about 50 minutes each. Okay, so it only runs it runs under two hours then. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, so actually shorter than the the Peter Jackson version of that that particular. So the big question, even though you don't speak Russian and couldn't understand everything they were saying, how was it? So I wanna preface my answer by saying that like I love the Lord of the Rings. So anytime somebody attempts an adaptation, you know, I wanna celebrate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love the old Rankin Bass cartoons, the 1978 yeah. cartoon, obviously the Peter Jackson films. But, you know, this one that was it, it, it's hard to believe this was made only 10 years before Peter Jackson's epic. Really? Wow. It was uh, definitely budget was an issue on this. I actually saw it um, described online as a glorious fever dream. <laughs> right. That was like the most perfect description. I don't think I can beat that. Uh, I was I, I didn't I haven't had a chance to watch it myself, although I'm sure I'll get around to it. But uh, the little bits and pieces I've seen, I was surprised when you said it was out in 91 because it really looked to me like it was a very 80s sort of thing. But I guess maybe that's just a cultural difference or, or, you know, the budget they had or whatever. But it looked much older than 1981 to me. Yeah, it, it definitely has like that kind of like 70s theater vibe, you know, okay. there's, there's most of the movie. They filmed some of it outside, but most of it's filmed you know, in a studio and in a green screen. And at times it felt really more like a theater performance than a movie, but like not in a, like more like in an uncomfortable way. Right. (laughs) Right. When your friend forces you to come to their one man show type of discomfort. Sure. 
You know, it's, it's like a mix of stage acting and superimposed graphics, bad special effects and green screens. Um, it's, it's really a visual treat. That was going to be my next question. What, what, what were the effects like? I mean, were, were there effects and, and what were they like? Attempts at effects. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to be positive here, Matt, but right. Oh, I know. I know. I I'm with you. The ring itself seemed like maybe it was made out of aluminum foil. All right. Um, gotcha. Sormon's costuming look like you, you remember the end of Bill and Ted when they go to the future. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, they find out that they're <laughs> rock stars. It's, it's kind of yeah. like Sormon's vibe. Right. And right. Gandalf's got, you know, his fireworks, he's famed fireworks and they mm-hmm. kind of look like they were hand drawn by a child and he's not wearing a hat. He doesn't have a staff. And I, I'm not going to expand <laughs> on this. Wait till you see him ride the Eagle dude. <laughs> I know you just watched it and I don't know how much research you got to do on it. Do you have any idea what their budget was on this or, or, or have they, I, they probably haven't disclosed that, but I, you know, I do, it's from the former Soviet union. They're pretty tight lipped about that kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I don't know. That's a great question. They like to keep their Lord of the Rings uh, budgets under wraps there in Russia because they don't want America to outpace them. I can uh, guess that it probably wasn't uh, very high. It's no $250 <laughs> million like Amazon. I'll tell you that much. So so as someone who's seen this and as someone who's already said that it was not good, is it worth watching if you're a, a, a Tolkien completist or, or a Lord of the Rings completist? I mean, if you're a completist, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I think that's probably a very small majority. Or minority of people. So I, what I would recommend is there's there's some some hero released a highlights reel on YouTube, 15 minutes long or something like that. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> because of the language barrier, uh, right. I recommend checking that out. I think a lot of the great highlights from you know the full the full length version are, are pulled out there. So it definitely gives you a flavor if you want to satisfy your curiosity. Right. Uh, so if, uh, so if people want to watch this and talk about it, or if they have their own theories or their own expectations about what this, uh, upcoming series is going to be like, uh, where can they go to, to, to let us know their, their hopes and dreams about uh, upcoming Tolkien projects? Yeah. Reach out to us, you know, go to sfnpod.com. Uh, let us know your, you know, your thoughts on the, uh, on the Soviet Union version, uh, if, if you take the time out of your life to watch that. <laughs> um, but also, you know, let us know if you have theories or speculation or news uh, on the new Amazon series. You know, um, mm-hmm. we're again, it's 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 pretty vague right now. We're we're looking into, you know, finding more detail about, you know, what happened in the Second Age. And if you're if you're interested in learning more about the events that occurred in the Second Age, uh, check out the the Tale of Years which is in Appendix B of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, usually found in the back of the Return of the King copy of the trilogy. Check it out. Speculate. Go to sfnpod.com. Let us know what you think. Right. And you go there, you'll find our social media, you'll find blogs, you'll uh, find links to all that stuff in show notes and plenty more. So we look forward to hearing what you think. Thanks, Mike, for that uh, hard-hitting Tolkien news. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, we'll talk to you next time. Take care. Tiffany 
Courtney Mosher is the author of Beauty Beyond the Threshold, How International Volunteering Saved My Life. Is also the International Missions Director for Aid Now and a volunteer with All Hands and Hearts. Uh, Tiffany, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. I, uh, I, I think I came across uh, you on uh, Instagram and I just uh, loved your feed and I uh, got deeper into checking out your story and I uh, really wanted to talk to you about it, uh, the book and uh, how you ended up writing the book and getting to that point. I, I know from listening to some of the other interviews you've done and, and uh, reading on your, your blog and, or, and reading in uh, your site that, you know, you, you were uh, struggling pretty deeply with depression. It sounds like you uh, had gone through a lot and uh, you had this sort of terrible convergence of things that that really led you in even deeper into depression. Yeah. So when I was in my mid 20s, I was suddenly faced with a divorce. Mm. And, you know, it was something so unexpected. It was all of a sudden now a single mother of a three year old daughter and a six month old son. And I just basically had the rug ripped out from underneath. As a result, I developed this immense fear of abandonment that over the subsequent seven years since that happened, like I just, it took me in this downward spiral of depression, anxiety, paranoia. And that ultimately led to a suicide attempt in 2014. Mm. So yeah, it was very difficult. And, and was that the point, you know, uh, where you said, you know, I, I need to figure out what to do? And you, it, did, had you sought medical help up, up to that point or any any sort of counseling at that point? I had tried counseling. I had tried different medications, but the medications, I had some uh, adverse reactions. So I had to change things around and find something that worked for me. But ultimately, what I discovered was I was lacking a sense of purpose okay. and the medications and the counseling, while they helped a little bit, they did not help me find that sense of purpose I needed to find that, for me, allowed me to feel whole. And that's what I found when I started volunteering. Yeah. And, and I think, again, kind of what uh, attracted me to, you know, uh, the story and to the book was uh, this past year has left a lot of people, you know, kind of aimless, kind of, I'm sure, you know, depression and other mental uh, health issues because they, you know, they've lost jobs, they've lost touch with family and friends. And, and uh, I'm, I'm certainly, uh, I would guess, a, a lack of direction and purpose. So I, I thought, of, you know, speaking to you about how you found that uh, might, you know, inform people or, you know, help people or, or give ideas to people in the last year or so that have, that have, uh, have found themselves kind of in the same situation or a similar situation. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, when we're just trying to discover ourselves and what our purpose is, it seems like a road that just doesn't have an end. And it seems very overwhelming. And you're just trying to figure out, like navigate through the paths of life. Like, what is it that makes me, me? And it took me a long time to discover that. But what it was that happened was I found that in my comfort zone where I felt safe and secure, I was wrapped in just so much worry, fear, paranoia, anxiety, and all that Mm -hmm. felt safe, always preparing for the worst. And I noticed I didn't grow at all within myself (laughs) when I was living in that. So I thought, you know what, I need to maybe 
go outside of my comfort zone and face my fears. And maybe that's where I'll discover my purpose. And so as an introvert and someone who's naturally just very, very shy, I thought maybe going to travel would be the best thing that I can do and traveling by myself on top of it. And so that's what I decided to do. Yep. Yeah. So as an author, I, I, you know, I travel a lot and I end up at conferences and usually it's with a big group of people I know, but every once in a while I'll go to one that I'm, you know, and I know no one, not even familiar with people from online. And as somewhat of an introvert myself at times, you know, that can be, you know, nerve wracking. You don't have that, that comfort. You don't have that shoulder to lean on while you're, you know, sitting in an airport trying to make that next flight or whatever. Uh, uh, but there you were doing something that bold and sort of, like you said, you know, sort of without that net to, to catch you uh, with people, you know, you've never met before. How, how did that go initially for you? I mean, how did you feel stepping into that? It was scary. When I would travel, I would rely on the people I was with to do all the talking, planning, to do all the things. And I would just, you know, I'm the fly on the wall at the party. I'm on the side just eating food and having fun and watching everybody else converse. And now all of a sudden I'm forced to do all of that for myself. So it was very nerve wracking. But I found that um, when I you know, went to go volunteer in disaster response, I went my first trip was to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, and I volunteered with an organization called All Hands and Hearts. Mm. And I found that they were so welcoming and they didn't weren't all up in my face or trying to get me to do too much all at once. They, you know, were sensing that I was a little nervous and shy. So they eased me into everything and they taught me everything I needed to know. And being with people who are somewhere together from all around the world for a purpose of helping others and giving back to communities and help trying to help make lives better. (laughs) It just, there's a sense of belonging you feel and it makes it more comfortable to kind of be open and, and kind of discover yourself more as an introvert in this kind of frightening situation, (laughs) traveling by yourself and you don't know what you're doing and you're, you have no idea the work you're doing, but I found that being with people who have just amazing hearts and amazing focus and amazing vision, it really helped me increase my confidence in being able to interact with other people. Well, that's great. Uh, so this first trip while you're while you're there and you're 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 still kind of getting you know used to things. What what kind of what kind of things did you have to do for you know uh, this was hurricane relief? You said right. In Puerto Rico, I did concrete roof repair and mold sanitation. And for someone like me who barely knew how to use a power drill going into all this, it was very, very nerve wracking. But you know what? I did it. I helped repair the roof. I helped sanitize the mold in a kitchen. And I felt, you know, really empowered after doing yeah. that, saying, I did this. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was my, my next question. I mean, had you, had you done anything like this before? Because I know if I, you know, went out to volunteer and they said, here are the things we need you to do. I would have been, I mean, obviously I would have learned, but I mean, there, there, there are things that not only am I in a weird situation, a new situation with new people, this whole new task is being handed to me that, uh, it's, it's really important to what they're doing. Uh, I, I, that certainly would have been something that would have, uh, <laughs> would have freaked me out just a little bit. When I was filling out the application, I'll tell you, uh, Mm. I I had seen the job descriptions, you know, debris removal, Mm. uh, muck and gut, um, mold sanitation, right? You know, roof repair, all these different things that go along and correlate with disaster response. And I'm filling out the application. I'm typing my name and everything. And I'm like, I don't know how to do any of this. Out loud, I'm saying this. I can't do this. (laughs) I can't do it. What am I doing? Am I taking on something too big? But I realized that, you know, I could have talked 
talk myself out of it. I could have said no, succumbed to my fears. And I am so, so, so grateful that I just went for it because it actually turned out to be so much fun. Right. Okay. And so that ends up being fun. It ends up being the situation. And, and, and like you said, you feel empowered. You feel a little, uh, a little, you know, more bold, I guess. What you, you come home from that first trip, you come back from that first, uh, sort of mission. What, what do you do next? What, what's, what are your thoughts when you get home? Well, I got to run right out and do that again. Or, or what do you, what are you thinking? Yeah. So when I, I left Puerto Rico knowing, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And, right. you know, I was in my thirties at this point, you know, it's like, I finally had that moment of now I know what my purpose is. And I felt so ambitious, motivated. I was inspired. I um, ended up going to get my master's degree in human security and resilience and studied about how people overcome natural disasters and, and things like that. And, and I just knew that traveling to volunteer and help people was something that I am going to love to do now from here on out. And so subsequently, I ended up going to North Carolina after Hurricane Florence and did relief there. And then in the beginning of 2020, I traveled to Nepal to do earthquake relief. And so it's been so exciting to see different areas of the world that have been impacted by disaster, but to do it in such a unique way. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, how many people go to Nepal at all? You know, you get to do that sort of thing anyway. But on top of that, help the people that are living there. It's a, a unique experience in just such a uh, an amazing place. Right, and you know what the funny thing is about um, these these trips that I take is that people ask me, you know, that this isn't vacation. Right. Why are you going to do that? That doesn't sound fun. You know, right. why why are you doing this? And I said, well, you know, I see it as an opportunity to to learn about different cultures, to help other people whose lives have been completely devastated by these disasters. You know, they had their lives ripped out from underneath them mm. within the blink of an eye. There, you, don't, you don't predict these things. And it gives me a way to really try to make some change in the world in a positive way. I'm using, I'm using my time creatively, I think. And, and then, you know, natural disasters, they strike, but the, you know, the, the sad thing is, is that you see it on the news and you've, and you feel terrible. You want to help in any way you can, but then the next big thing in the news happens and then we all forget. Mm -hmm. And natural disasters i mean recovery takes years the earthquake relief that i went to go do in nepal was in 2020 but the earthquake didn't happen way back until you know it was 2015 it's just it definitely there's a a need for long-term disaster recovery and by Mm. me going and telling everyone about it it's kind of they're like wow i didn't even know that existed Mm -hmm. and it kind of sparks interest in a way oh yeah absolutely so as you're as you're doing these various uh, various uh, volunteering opportunities, these these missions, are you are you making notes for the book, or is the book really something that comes to you once you're you're back home and you're sort of out of the field and thinking, you know, maybe this would be something to, good to share with people this this journey, or is it something kind of ongoing? When I went to Puerto Rico, I kind of journaled my experiences uh, and I took a lot of photos and I put it all into kind of a PDF file thing, visual journal that I sent out to family and friends. And it was very matter of fact, it was not anything really 
you know, it was like, I did this today and I felt great about doing this. It wasn't anything exciting, but the friends and family that saw it, they were like, wow, that's really unique. Like you should, mm-hmm. you know, you should share that with more people. I was like, no, 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 <laughs> I can't do that. I'm not a creative right. writer because academic writing always came stronger to me. Okay. And then as I continued to do my travels and my volunteering, I, you know, would document them down, just kind of journal them down and, I would tell people, you know, when I got back about how these trips helped me and my mental health, you know, give how giving back um, helps then serve me and keeps me mentally strong. And and the confidence I I get from learning new skills helps me feel good about myself. And I was told, you know, what, you should put that in a book. You should share that with the world. Like people need to hear this story. And I got approached to write the book right before I left for Nepal. And I thought, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to Nepal. Let me think about it while I'm over there. Let me, let me consider this. This is a lot to undertake. And when I got back, I started writing and it just all kind of flowed. And I learned through the process that I, I had a creative writer within me that I didn't know existed. And, uh, and then I just published in December of 2020. So it all happened so quickly, but I'm just so grateful that I was able to do it. So this was truly a, a string of you trying new things, leading to you trying another new thing, to trying another new thing, uh, and 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 all of them working out to to to, uh, to kind of help you through this, to help you figure out everything you've learned and everything you've gone through. Was it uh, was it cathartic to you and helpful on your journey, or were you aiming more to help the reader that's going to read the book? It was a little bit of both. I think mm-hmm. it was very therapeutic for me to write it all down. And especially it w- while it was difficult, it was good for me to write down and share the the vulnerable part, the the, the part where I was very depressed, um, you know, to, sh- to open up and share about my suicide attempt was it was hard. But I felt at the same time it helped me battle through some of those difficult emotions I had been keeping at bay for a while. And then, yeah, ultimately, I wanted to write the book in order to inspire other people that may be wondering, you know, I'm struggling with depression and anxiety, but and I'm not sure how to overcome this. And I feel like maybe my story can help inspire people that may be struggling to do things in a different way. Absolutely. And uh, that was kind of my next question. What do you hope readers would take away from this? But I I think obviously not everyone's going to have the same mission or have that same aha moment that you had in volunteering. But hopefully this will help people to pursue what might be theirs. Right. Exactly. So, you know, everyone's comfort zone is different. And Mm. I kind of like to use the example of, you know, for me, yes, volunteering and traveling was my aha moment. And I know that's not for everybody. I totally understand that. But, you know, another example would be like an aspiring singer. You know, what can they do to cross that little comfort zone threshold? You know, you could put some videos out on social media. You can go to an open mic night. I mean, there's different ideas you can do. And generally everyone around you is going to be supportive and encouraging. And that's really, really great. And that's ultimately where I came up with the title of my book, Beauty Beyond the Threshold, that there is good, there is beauty when you cross over that threshold of your comfort zone. But you have to cross it to find it. If you don't, you're not going to see it. (laughs) 
Right. And it doesn't have to be that a giant leap. It can be several small leaps or just that maybe that first small leap takes you onto the next and the next or that first small leap points you in the direction you didn't realize you wanted to go and you go from there. Uh, it doesn't have to be a, a, a giant, you know, it has to be a trip into a disaster zone. It doesn't have to be, you know, one thing or the other. It can be those little things that you mean to do and just haven't done them to further what you love to do or enjoy doing. Exactly. So, you know, in my book, I do talk about those little baby steps that led me eventually to traveling. Mm-hmm. You know, the first one was I decided to, I wanted to learn how to play guitar and my guitar mm-hmm. teacher is wanting me to, you know, dabble in some songwriting and make up a song on the fly right there in the <laughs> studio and sing. And there's people listening. And I was uh. like, scary. I was scared to death. <laughs> and the, the song I wrote, and if, if you read the book, you'll see it. I'm not going to spoil it because it is absolutely terrible. <laughs> the lyrics, <laughs> But it was, um, it was very, you know, once I did it, I felt like, wow, I was so scared and I could have said, nope, 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 I'm not doing that. Nope. But I did it. And then I, as silly as it was, and I felt absolutely ridiculous, I laughed at myself and I thought it was fun. And it then encouraged me to play the guitar and sing at home more. And then I started putting videos on my social media and I would get positive feedback. You know, I'm not trying to be a rock star, but all those little steps help. Then I started doing some volunteer work locally in my community. And so that's what those little steps led to me being able to take a real giant leap. And, and I think, uh, you know, for a lot of people that are introverts or, or even, you know, sort of, you know, sort of introverted, going on social media and putting yourself out there is another, it's a big step to go out there and say, hey, here's me playing guitar, which I've never done before. Or here's a, you know, here's a video of me at an open mic or here's a poem I wrote, you know, something like that is in really putting yourself out there for you know introverts. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, in in Instagram Live or Facebook Mm, Live, they still terrify me. But I found the more I do them, the more comfortable I get. You know, you have to keep trying. It's very scary. The first time I did an Instagram Live, I remember it was like right around Thanksgiving and I was shaking so much. And then I just I turned up. I turned it off like after 20 seconds. I was like, Mm. I can't do it. Let me try again. And I keep trying and I keep trying. And as much as it's it's scary to me still i know one day i'm going to learn to love it because i enjoy the feedback i get i enjoy the conversations i have it's just me having to get over that fear of rejection which is terrifying yeah <laughs> yeah well you know i look back at you know way back into to college and i look at you know other opportunities where you know i know knew a lot of actors and i knew a lot of uh, poets and, and 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 musicians and they would be doing uh open mics and they're like oh come on get up and i would never do it and now that i look back i don't know why i didn't i don't know what made me afraid to get up there when all of my friends were getting up there and you know some some of them making fools of themselves and some of them not but i I don't know what it was that stopped me from not joining in with them when they were clearly enjoying themselves. I think the same thing a lot. I look back, I'm like, I didn't really discover myself till I was in my mid thirties. I would have found all of this sooner in life, gone through the difficult journey that I did. Would I have been down that rabbit hole of severe depression? I went through those experiences for a reason. (laughs) That was, you know, for me to now share my story and hopefully inspire other people. And, you know, so, but I do, I do think about that. Um, And so uh, we, when I was first introducing you, we talked about some of the charities that you're involved with. And I noticed on your site, when people buy their book, whether they buy your ebook or your paper back, uh, you, you give some of those proceeds to the various charities you love. 
Yes, I do. So $1 of every paperback sold, I do give to charities. Um, I donate them to All Hands and Hearts, which is a disaster response organization that I have grown to love volunteering with. Also, aidnow.org, which is the um, nonprofit organization that I'm the international missions director for that is locally based here in Virginia Beach. And we have an ongoing project, uh, school restoration project in Mexico that I am overseeing. Yeah. So I, these organizations have really, really helped me grow so much within myself. And the least I can do is give back to them. And, and those were, uh, at least all hands and hearts was one of the first you volunteered with, or one of the first you, you started with. So you've been with them for quite a while now. Yeah. And it's, I can't wait to go, you know, once uh, the pandemic clears and it's safe to travel, I can't wait to see where I'll be able to go. I, uh, I was listening to an interview earlier uh, that you had with someone else and uh, they asked about what your children are doing. Are they getting involved in, you know, helping out with other people or, or, or uh, I guess, like you said, it's been a few years now. So so they're, they're not grown up, but they're they're much older now. What what sort of things are they into? Yeah. So my my children now are 18, 15 and 11. Wow. And we do a volunteer work locally in our community here in Virginia Beach together. My my daughter, who's who just turned 18 not too long ago, she is anxious to travel with me to volunteer that she's old enough to. And right. so uh, when when we're able to, I'll definitely be taking her because she wants to. You know, she's been inspired by by me, too. And she sees all the, the pictures and hears all the stories. But what we do locally here in Virginia Beach with Aid Now is we help the local homeless community, uh, specifically the children in the homeless community uh, in Virginia Beach alone. There are over 900 children deemed homeless or at risk of homelessness. So we do what we can to help them for their schools and get them clothing that they need and the supplies they need. We also have a program called Families for Families. And through that, we have fed over... Uh, close to 30,000 meals to families in need since the pandemic started. So we do a lot together as a family with that. And I feel like it brings us closer together. I was going to say my, my uh, sons are in uh, scouts and they're in uh, honor society and things like that with school. But for the last year we've been, you know, cooped up in the house and they've been playing video games nonstop almost. And so we've started doing smaller projects the same way, not just to, to do that volunteering or to, you know, to, to not just to help other people, but it brings us as a family, an activity we can do together and get out. And it, uh, it helps us grow, like you said, kind of uh, growing together as a family and, and doing something that means something together as a family. Exactly. And I think it's good for the kids to learn those lessons too. I did not grow up in that environment where we went and volunteered and, um, you know, I love the fact that my kids enjoy it so much. You know, we have gone to feed the homeless at Thanksgiving and and seeing my son just, you know, my my little one, he's lighting up and beaming from ear to ear, eager to help. And I feel like it instills good values in the children, you know, things that they can take into adulthood. Just just show that, you know, compassion and it's, I'm so glad that we can do it all together. It's just something different and unique and exciting and 
and we all feel good afterwards. It's like it's a win-win all around. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tiffany Moser is the author of Beauty Beyond the Threshold, How International Volunteering Saved My Life. Uh, Tiffany, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. And thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for joining me for Something From Nothing. Also, a big thanks to Tim Wagner, Mike Liddy, and Tiffany Mosher for being here. Go to sfnpod.com to find all of our social media and tell us who you think the 10,000-volt ghost really is. Jinkies, I hope it isn't some old dude in a mask again. Have a good day, and I'll talk to you soon. I'm Phil. And I'm Kyle. We host the Movie Wars podcast. We pit the most legendary films of all time against one another using our theoretical scorecard, which consists of some classic categories like best cast, as well as off-the-wall categories like which gang would you rather be in from our Goodfellas vs. The Godfather episode, or who would you rather be eaten by the shark or the T-Rex from our Jurassic Park vs. Jaws episode. And our matchups aren't always obvious. We go out of our way to find connective tissues between the films we choose. You won't want to miss randos, which is the result of us doing hours of research and preparation for each show. You're guaranteed to hear facts that you won't even find in the deepest corners of the internet. Check out episodes like There Will Be Blood versus No Country for Old Men and Total Recall versus Minority Report. If you want to hear a hilarious and informative approach to stacking the greatest films of all time against one another, check out Movie Wars.